Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, plus some comments from me on the banking melodramas. Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative will discuss their new report in the state of mass incarceration in the U.S. And Anel Shaleen of the Quincy Institute will look at the Chinese brokered deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. First, some comments from me on the spate of bank failures. I first started writing about economic affairs in the mid-80s, a decade that featured a couple of thousand bank failures, the most since the early 1930s. They subsided into the single digits after 1993 until the financial crisis of 2008. Then there were about 500 failures between 2008 and 13, but then again they subsided into the single digits. So it's not been common lately to see a bank failure of major importance, but over the last week we've gotten three, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, and almost forgotten in the turmoil, a third, Silvergate. And across the Atlantic, Credit Suisse, which has been in trouble of varying degrees of severity for years now, looked to be on the verge of death until the Swiss Central Bank threw it a lifeline on Wednesday. Of course, the Swiss government would never let a bank like that go under. It would destroy the country's reputation as a financial center. But wild times all around. Back to the U.S. Early this week, crypto site Coindesk, reviewing last week's damage, said, This week has seen major trouble for financial institutions tied to innovative and forward-looking sectors of the economy. Another way to put it would be to say that the week saw trouble for institutions built on nothing that had been sustained by years of easy money. Silvergate and Signature were wiped out in large part because of their ties to the cryptocurrency business. Crypto has always had trouble connecting its nonsensical instruments to the straight world's financial system. It's not easy to convert holdings from dollars or other real currencies into fake units, or vice versa. To get around that problem, the wizards of crypto have created synthetic coins that are supposed to hold a $1 value. They mostly do, but every now and then one falls apart. Imagine that a fake dollar is not as stable as a real dollar. Silvergate was an attempt to bridge the crypto and dollar worlds. It lost about a billion dollars last year and finally succumbed to a run following the meltdown of Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX. It announced a week ago that it was winding down and returning money to its depositors. Signature, a New York-based bank that also catered to members of the crypto cult, was shut down by regulators on Sunday. The SVB story is more complicated. It was not, as some have argued, a bank that did everything right, making productive loans to innovative entrepreneurs. They did some of that, although I have reservations about overpraising this sector, whose contributions to human betterment are highly debatable, but they also had a very strange business model. Over the last few years, the tech sector and the venture capitalists who fund it, the prime customers of the Silicon Valley Bank, have been rolling in money. The major reason for this is the Federal Reserve's easy money policies that dominated the financial landscape from the financial crisis of 2008 until the turn towards tighter money in the spring of 2022. Except for a modest tightening in 2018 and 19, the Fed kept interest rates close to zero and bought trillions of dollars worth of bonds, mostly U.S. Treasuries, for years on end. The idea at first was to support recovery from the Great Recession, and then subsequently to counter the effects of the COVID pandemic. How much these policies help the real economy is a matter of debate. Federal Reserve research on the topic is inconclusive, but makes no grand claims. But there's no doubt they supercharged the financial markets. Between March 2009 and December 2021, the stock market rose 517%, the second biggest rise of any comparable period over the last century. The only more exuberant period was 1999-2000, the peak of the dot-com bubble. Venture capital, VC investments, rose 1,143%. Cryptocurrencies weirdly became a thing. There were two important drivers behind those surges. Low interest rates drove investors to seek the better returns that stocks and VC and maybe crypto have historically offered. And the plentiful supply of cash from the Fed's bond-buying operations gave them the means to, as the saying goes, reach for yield. This especially applied to SVB's customers. They had plenty of money to keep on deposit, but no need for loans. Between 2019 and 21, deposits at the bank more than tripled, but loans merely doubled. SVP put the excess into securities, the holdings of which more than quadrupled. But with interest rates so low in 2021, three months' treasury bills, the safest place to put money other than keeping wads of cash in the vault, yielded an average of 0.05% that year. 
So the bank's managers found themselves also tempted to reach for yield. So they plowed billions into longer-term bonds, which paid higher rates, but exposed the bank to far more risk. Bond prices fall whenever interest rates rise. They could have hedged this risk with derivatives, the safe, not the radioactive kind, but they didn't. That would have cut into their returns. No doubt there will be investigations into why the bank was so reckless, but the fact that it went without a chief risk officer for most of last year might have something to do with it. But it wasn't just the bank's management that was deficient. The FDIC, the Fed, and the California banking authorities should have intervened, but they didn't. SVB is not alone. According to the FDIC, the entire banking system is sitting on $620 billion and unrealized that is paper losses, by far the highest in history. According to the banking analyst Timothy Coffey of Jenny Montgomery Scott, SVB was an outlier, but this still may not be the last we've seen of the problem. The source of this problem is the rise in interest rates and the reversal of the massive bond-buying program engineered by the Fed over the last year. Some would take that as an argument against ever raising interest rates, but capitalism does not work well with 0% rates. It generates speculative bubbles and recklessness like that of SVB. If you don't like that, and there's no reason you should, your problem is with capitalism, not interest rate policy. There's a school of thought on the political left that thinks that keeping interest rates at zero and having the Fed and other central banks print money are good things. It's hard to come up with a list of good things the policy did over the last decade plus. Investment in real things, which generate productivity and growth over the long term, stayed low throughout the long period of indulgent monetary policy, barely keeping ahead of depreciation. Investment was dominated by quick payoff things that go obsolete quickly. Productivity growth was low. And before someone righteously emails me that growth is ecologically destructive, I know this. But until we transcend capitalism, we're not going to have a steady-state economy or one that values quality over quantity, happiness over accumulation. We had a wild housing boom, one that rivaled the mania of the mid-2000s, but there was little new building in a country's short millions of dwellings. It was mostly about affluent people buying existing houses at ever higher prices, which froze the less affluent out of both purchase and rental markets. I would not deem this real-world experiment a success. Tight money can be cruel, but loose money has serious problems too. Has the U.S. economy and its financial system become so structurally weak that it can't live with normal levels of interest rates? We're about to find out. We'll be back with some voices other than my own after musical break. some of the prelude in memoriam Dmitry Shostakovich, a 1975 composition by the Soviet composer Alfred Schnitke, performed by the violinists Ole Krisa and Alexander Fischer. Schnitke, though revered by some, isn't that widely known. On his blog, The Rest is Noise, the critic Alex Ross said this of his music. His harmonies had a malarian heft, his melodies a Schubertian lilt, he spun them out effortlessly, but he could not keep the Austrian romantic tone pristine. The prototypical Schnitke phrase begins in an innocent nocturnal wanderer tone and then is waylaid by dissonances. Like a smearing of paint, suspended tones blacken into clusters. His approach resembles Shostakovich's, a scholarly devotion shot through with Russian irony and pessimism. I know it's not cool to play Russian music in some circles these days, but Schnitke had nothing to do with the invasion of Ukraine. The number of Americans behind bars dipped a bit in the pandemic, but we seem to be fully back into the punitive mode. Here at the measure of the situation is Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. They're just out with this year's edition of their flagship report, Mass Incarceration, the Whole Pie 2023. 
It's a collection of stats and striking graphics that show the carceral state returning to business as usual. Wanda Bertram. The U.S. prison population and jail population as well is just a correctional population more broadly. We've got so many categories of uh, people whose lives are inhibited by the state. Just give us a rundown. Who is locked up and in what kinds of facilities? How many people? We usually hear 2 million. Does it come down a bit? It has come down a bit, um, you know, because of the pandemic. And when I say because of the pandemic, I want to be really clear that this was because of systemic slowdowns, right? Jury trials stopped in 2020, right? Because you couldn't get people together in a room the same way. You had all that stuff. You know, I'm not a cat with the lawyer that was on Zoom. Because of all these administrative hurdles, you had a, a giant slowdown in the criminal justice system that led downstream to a, a smaller prison and jail population. Now, we have put together uh, the data in our report, Mass Incarceration, the Whole Pie, from a few different data sources. The criminal justice system in this country is fragmented into prisons, state and federal, local jails, involuntary commitment facilities, psychiatric hospitals, youth detention centers, Indian country jails, U.S. Marshal Service uh, facilities, yada, 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 all these different ones. And so we have in cobbling together the number of people who are in these facilities, we don't have data showing exactly how many people are locked up today, March 15th, 2023, but we do know how many people are locked up more or less since the pandemic uh, began and then also began to subside. And so it's about 1.9 million people. So off slightly, but uh, now what's the breakdown between um, prisons and jails? You've got about as uh, about half as many people in local jails as are in state prisons, uh, and then another 200,000 people in federal prisons. I think the important thing that many people don't understand is that most people who are locked up in this country are locked up in state prisons. These are facilities whose populations are driven by laws that are made by people that you elect, right? Uh, people that might have even you know put literature at your door or sent a volunteer to your door before. Mass incarceration is very local. There's you know also I think an under underappreciated fact is that. You know, there's about 420,000 people on any given day who are sitting behind bars in local jails awaiting trial. They haven't been convicted yet. And of course, we have all of this fear mongering right now about um, bail reform causing rising crime. And so we should need to do away with bail reform. But the reality is that we're locking up hundreds of thousands of people in this country every single day uh, because we don't want them to go free uh, pretrial. Now, the bail reform panic is just 100% nonsense, isn't it? Yes, it is. We did an analysis of 13 jurisdictions that both uh, conducted uh, bail reform um, or passed significant pretrial reform and also studied the impacts uh, of that reform on uh, arrest rates and failure to appear rates and overall community crime rates. And what we found is that with one exception, those jurisdictions saw basically no change in crime after that happened, or even they saw a decrease. Now, the one exception was New York, where the data that had come out uh, by the time that we were able to analyze it was we, we couldn't really tell what had happened. It's like some data showed an increase. And so we, we, we marked that one down as an increase at that point. Over time, the data has shown that actually uh, only a very, very tiny, I mean, like a fraction of a percent, I think, of people who are released pretrial under the uh, New York bail reform laws have gone on to commit another violent crime. That law hasn't driven an increase in crime either. So what's driving the panic? Just the usual, we love cops stuff? Yeah, I think that what's driving the panic is an awareness that this is what lawmakers rely on. This is what lawmakers have always relied on to get reelected is to, you know, say, oh, we, you know, we've got, we've got crime. And, you know, the reason that crime is happening is because there are these certain people who are intrinsically bad people. Um, and we, you know, we can't have them on our streets in any you know, way, shape or form, even if um, these are people that we have you know, only charged with crimes as opposed to actually convicting them of anything. And even if we have a presumption of innocence in the Constitution, that implies that people will probably shouldn't be locked up pretrial. It's on both sides of the aisle. You know, Republicans are obviously driving this narrative around crime as they drive the narrative around many, many things. But um, Democrats have pretty easily taken it up as well, right? Kathy Hochul in New York here was was instrumental in pushing for rollbacks to bail reform and and recently succeeded. Okay, and uh, just debunk a myth or two here. Uh, we hear a lot about how uh, private prisons are a major actor in all this, and uh, the provision of prison labor is also a driving force behind mass incarceration. Uh, either of these things true? Well, no. Uh, the, what we what we do in this report is uh, we provide a graphic showing the fraction of people who are locked up in prisons and jails nationwide who are in private facilities. It's about seven percent. 
right? The vast majority of people who are locked up are locked up in public facilities. But I do want to say this regarding both the, you know, the small, the actually small private prison population and the, you know, in effect, very small number of people, very, very small number of people in prison who are working for private companies. What's driving these narratives about private companies driving mass incarceration or controlling or being behind mass incarceration is, uh, I I think, um, a, frankly, a media that is happy to divert people from understanding how incarceration really works. There are, you know, just, just to, you know, kind of zoom out a little bit, there's tons and tons of companies uh, that profit off of, you know, incarcerated people every single day without actually running the prisons. There are hundreds of thousands of people in state prisons today who are working jobs for little to no wages. They just happen to be working for the prisons themselves. They're working for the state. I think if we really wrapped our minds around the fact that the prison system today needs incarcerated people's free or cheap labor in order to run, that would prompt a a major reckoning with, you know, the fact that we have this system in the first place and that we're locking up so many people. And and that's why I think the the narrative that it's it's all Victoria's Secret enslaving people to make panties is so pervasive because it keeps people from reckoning with that deeper truth. And then there's notions around, too, that uh, it's mostly the war on drugs is driving incarceration. Is that true? The war on drugs um, is, no, it's not driving, it's not driving mass incarceration. 62% of people in prisons are, are there because of a violent offense that has nothing to do with drugs, although they may well have been charged with other drug offenses in the process of getting to prison. We need to understand that, you know, this is a, this is a, a very substantial part of our prison system, but it's not, it's not the single driving factor behind mass incarceration. It's more prevalent in the federal prisons than the state prisons, right? It is. It is. And I, I do want to say, you know, like the drug policing and drug enforcement has led to some of the greatest injustices in our prison system today. You know, you have, uh, for instance, you've got about 40,000 women who are locked up in state prisons today because of a drug offense. Most of those women are mothers. When they get out of prison, they are not going to be able to get public housing, even though virtually all of them probably qualify just based on their extremely low incomes alone right? The average income of a woman in prison before she was incarcerated was like $14,000 a year. And so the war on drugs is, is absolutely destroying people's lives. It also brings people into the criminal justice system who are then, you know, kept there and, and, and sucked into the system because, you know, they can't pay a fine or a fee that was associated with their charge or their conviction because maybe they missed their court date, which is very easy to do, even if you don't intend to, because they happen to be put on probation. And then, you know, they were put on an ankle monitor and then the ankle monitor, which ankle monitors are very hypersensitive to people, you know, straying outside the borders of where they're supposed to be. They could have picked up, uh, you know, a violation or two. Then they're, you know, then they have black marks on their records. And so you can get caught up in the criminal justice system. And you can even go to prison for, you know, these very low level offenses. And so I, I do want to say that the, that the war on drugs is important. It's just not the single driver. Another myth uh, is that crime victims support long prison sentences. Uh, you've got evidence to the contrary, right? That's right. That's right. The Alliance for Safety and Justice uh, conducted a national survey of 1,500 people who reported crime victimization within the last 10 years. And we visualized some of that survey data in our report. And the two that stick out to me the most first is that when people who were victims of crime were asked whether they preferred holding people who do harm accountable by putting them in prison or through options beyond prison, right, um, such as, you know, mental health treatment or um, or other community service or, you know, uh, what what have you, um, only 18 percent said prison. Three quarters said options beyond prison. So, um, you know, what's clear is that people who are, you know, most impacted by crime actually don't think that prison is working or doing the job to keep their communities safe. The other one that that um, sticks with me, and this speaks to what we were talking about about bail before, was that uh, when they were asked if they'd prefer to keep people in jails pre-trial or use alternatives to incarceration, just twenty-one percent of crime victims said jails. Seventy-one percent said that they would prefer alternatives. And underscore, these are people who've been victims of crimes. They're not innocent bystanders or God knows, you know, politicians. That's right. It's a nationally representative sample of people who report crime victimization. I'm speaking with Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. You said earlier, I believe that 60% of the people in state prisons are there for violent crimes. Is the definition of violence as clear as it might sound in the uh, first hearing? No, it, I mean, it isn't. Like, that, and that's something that people have begun to talk about more is that, you know, you can be sentenced for a violent crime, but that could be something that, you know, that, that could be 
um, a crime that was committed without actually being hurt. There was just a weapon involved. It could be a crime that took place where, you know, the circumstances were such that if people actually knew about it, they might feel um, a lot more sympathy with you. Like perhaps you were defending yourself from, you know, uh, from your abuser, right? If you're in a domestic abuse situation, this is why a lot of uh, women are in prison. And it could be something that you did when you were a child. None of the circumstances around the offense are told uh, or described through um, this label violent. And that's important, right? Because not only are, you know, not, not only does, does labeling someone a violent criminal make it easier to lock them up for uh, untold numbers of years, it also, in today's day and age, makes them ineligible for all sorts of reforms that have passed. Uh, you know, for instance, good time credits, like an expanded, expanded good time credit system that allows people to earn more time off their sentences for good behavior. Often those rules, those reforms exclude anybody who's been convicted of a violent offense. Oftentimes in states that restore uh, parole or early release opportunities to people who are incarcerated, they exclude anybody convicted of a violent offense. During COVID, a lot of states said, we're going to explore releasing more people. Well, they didn't. But they, when, even when they said that they were going to, they stipulated, we're not going to consider anybody convicted of a violent offense. And when people get out of prison, this moniker violent follows them around in terms of you know, what they can and can't do and what rights they're excluded from. Um, in Florida, uh, they only passed um, the reenfranchisement or the bill that reenfranchised uh, people with felony records for people who were not convicted of certain violent offenses or sexual offenses. So, you know, the, the violent label is really, really important and uh, has, has done a lot of work to destroy people's lives. Now, if we ever want to get serious about reducing the prison population, which is a very hard thing to imagine, but let's uh, be ambitious in our imagination, we're going to have to release people who might not uh, have the most saintly biographies. Mm-hmm. This is just something we're going to have to get used to, right? If we want to get serious about this business, I think so. And I, you know, I think this is. I think that when it comes down to it, we just have to be aware that uh, prosecutors, uh, state lawmakers, our governors, uh, police, you know, representatives of law enforcement, and the media are all working really hard to make us believe that there is a sizable contingent of our society who are unreformable. To borrow a term from the Clinton super predators. Um, and in my view, it's a, it's a good time to talk about the nonviolent violent binary because many people who go to prison for nonviolent crimes today are uh, being increasingly painted as the worst of the worst, right? Take people who are using and selling pills that might contain fentanyl. A lot of people still see these folks who are nonviolent offenders as monsters. When lawmakers, Democrats and Republicans, fearmonger about people on parole and probation who violate their supervision, people who uh, prosecutors have declined to incarcerate despite their having a prior record, um, and then that person goes on to commit a crime and people are like, well, why didn't you just lock them up before for 10 years? People who violate the terms of their probation. These are people whose greatest defense to date might be something like wandering outside the boundaries of where their ankle monitor allows them to go. So we kind of have to be fighting narratives about bad people on every front right now, um, both nonviolent and nonviolent offenses. In his book on the U.S. influence on Nazi law, um, the Yale law professor George Whitmans makes the point that uh, the U.S. and Nazi Germany were two of the few jurisdictions in history that viewed people not as having committed crimes, but as being criminals. There was something essentially you know, flawed about you, and not just mm-hmm. something you did wrong, but something that you are wrong, you are bad. I mean, it's just a, a remarkable thing that uh, it's just so pervaded the public consciousness. Right. I mean, and, and you want to talk about, you know, you want to talk about the influence of private companies on the criminal justice system. Criminal justice system is very good at making people look a lot more dangerous than they are, looking like, you know, people whose status permanently is to be a criminal. And um, more importantly, there's also a lot of money there, right? There's so much money in, uh, in, in you know, shackling people uh, with, with ankle monitors that then, you know, rack up one million violations um, you know, because they're these hypersensitive devices. Um, there's a lot of money in, you know, expanding surveillance cameras. And there's, you know, there's tons of money in, in various pieces of technology, you know, both within and without prison and jail systems that can keep people under, you know, watchful eye 24-7. So now, you know, not only do we have this ideology that, you know, you're pointing out is shared with Nazi Germany, we also have the technology and we, you know, both the actual machines and the human infrastructural technology to reinforce that um, to a public that, you know, unfortunately is liable to believe it. And you also said you wanted to say something about how uh, many blue states have some of the most objectively racist prison systems. What do you mean by that? I wanted to point it out because, you know, I thought I figured we would be talking about how 
in red states, um, there do tend to actually be higher violent crime rates than in blue states. That is a very powerful gotcha because, of course, these are the you know these red states are the places where people are calling for um, more incarceration, and it kind of suggests that that uh, is not going to work as a solution to to violent crime. But blue states have their own sins too, right? Blue states have some of the most shocking racial disparities in their prison populations. Um, let's see if I can just give like an example here. Um, you know, Washington, I'll give, I'll throw up the state where I'm from under the bus, right? 66% of the Washington state population is white, but 60% of the prison population is non-white. States like Washington, like Massachusetts, like Minnesota, like Michigan, that are known for being rather progressive places, um, also have these shocking racial disparities and are, are locking up disproportionately, you know, way more uh, black and brown people. And also most states that have abolished parole in blue states, the movement to abolish people's opportunities for early release took hold and, and, and spread fastest in um, states uh, controlled by Democrats. Any idea of why these things are happening? The criminal justice system is a, a means of enforcing the policies that we have in this country and um, that, that hold you know, people who are poor, hold them down right, and keep them from succeeding. The messaging that we hear from lawmakers in blue states that they are so progressive and they're so anti-racist is a, a, it's a, a bunch of baloney. You know, when you look at who is in prison, it's overwhelmingly poor people nationwide. And the fact that the, you know, the prison populations in these blue states are overwhelmingly black just goes to show, you know, these are the poorest people in these places. You can't really be anti-racist and have a massive criminal justice system because that justice system is always going to lock up the poorest people. And, you know, in, in this country, the poorest people are in many places, um, if not most, Black people. So where are we in the politics of all this now? And there was a period when uh, the new Jim Crow came out. There was um, something of a, I don't know about a movement, but there's certainly a lot of attention paid to these matters. The George Floyd uh, summer, there was certainly a lot of attention paid to these matters. It's something that looked like a movement, at least for a little while. But mm-hmm. now we've had this you know, increase in crime after COVID and uh, uh, even greater h- increase in anxiety around it uh, and sensationalism. Uh, so where are we in the politics of mass incarceration right now? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I think that where we are is, is you know, fighting some of the battles that we thought we had stopped fighting a few years ago. We thought that the war on drugs was something that we could, it, it had almost been done to death, talking about how the war on drugs had ruined people's lives, you know, millions of people's lives. Um, And, you know, in the advocacy space, I know that my colleagues and I were talking about how do we start to talk to people more about the importance of not vilifying um, people who, you know, have a violent offense on their record just because it says violent. Let's try to stop that kind of framing from taking hold because that can lead to uh, really, really um, terrible laws and policies too. But now we have the debate about bail reform, right, which, you know, is uh, primarily the people who are going to be hurt by an entrenchment of money bail are people who are committing nonviolent offenses. We have fentanyl um, and, and, and spice and all these things that are triggering a, a resurgence of the war on drugs. And, you know, you have an expansion of probation and of diversion programs uh, that, you know, claim to be alternatives to incarceration, but are actually putting thousands and thousands of people under surveillance such that they can be tracked and and monitored and they're not actually helped to get their lives back on track um, or to solve whatever problem was that led them to their interactions with the criminal justice system. So really we're, you know, we're now back to fighting the policy battles regarding the war on drugs, regarding probation, regarding pretrial detention. Uh, And so I I think that we're, you know, it, it really needs to be all hands on deck all over again. But I do also see, you know, that there's there are some people who are more aware of the the cruelest aspects of of the justice system. For instance, I think that everyone kind of understands intuitively now, or many people do. I shouldn't say everyone, but many people understand that prisons talked a big game about releasing a lot of people during COVID nineteen, which was a public health emergency that put people's, uh, you know, prison sentences at risk of becoming death sentences, and then states didn't do that. Right. Releases from state prisons went down by 10 percent during 2020 from what they were in 2019. Even fewer releases from prison in 2021. States demonstrated their complete lack of concern for the welfare of incarcerated people um, by releasing fewer people during the pandemic. And so I think that that and things like that are beginning to make people aware the authorities in charge of prison and jail systems are just cruel. That was Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. 
My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Police on My Back by The Clash. Next, a look at the Chinese brokered deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran to restore diplomatic relations between those two countries. My guest is Anel Shaleen, a fellow at the Quincy Institute in Washington. First of all, just an amazing number coming out of Saudi Aramco the other day, $161 billion in profit, which is probably more than any corporation has ever made ever <laughs> anywhere on earth. Simple question, what do they do with all that money? That is the question. I guess you know, it's not so simple a question. But. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting because they did say that they're planning to boost capital investment by 45% in future production capacity, but that, that isn't much above, that wouldn't necessarily expand what they were already planning to do. You know, we know that the Saudi economy remains deeply dependent on fossil fuels, almost entirely dependent on fossil fuels, although it is in Mohammed bin Salman's plan to fully diversify the Saudi economy, in part just because fossil fuel production is such a low, you know, it's not a labor intensive industry. And so there just aren't that many jobs associated with it. And he needs an economy that can really employ Saudis such that they aren't on the state's payroll the way that they traditionally have been. Yeah, but ever since I've been following this sort of thing, which is about 30 years, there's been talk about diversifying the Saudi economy, and it never really seems to happen. Um, Is is that a hopeless uh, dream? The difference now, the way that Mohammed bin Salman has really implemented these changes to the Saudi economy, well, to, to Saudi society in particular, that it was so expensive for the Saudi state to not only employ male Saudi citizens, but also to have to pay them enough to support all female members of their family because women were not allowed to exist in the public sphere. And so just had to you know, sort of be at home with kids or, you know, in very limited work that, that didn't have them interacting with men outside of their own families. The fact that he has really made an effort to change both laws as well as norms around women in public space, you know, really made a point about hiring women this, I think th- that's one of, I think, the clearest indicators that this is not just the same old hot air about, yes, we know we need to diversify, but as long as we have oil, we're, you know, it's difficult, so we're not actually going to do it. And in part, this is also driven by the fact that we had the King Abdullah scholarship program under the previous king who died in 2015, but it was his initiative that sent hundreds of thousands of young Saudis, men and women, abroad to study in the US and the UK and Australia. And that's the generation, kind of these millennial Saudis, um, since the, the program has mostly wound down at this point, but at the time it was sending vast numbers of Saudis outside the country, and they have very different ideas about how they want their country to operate. And that includes having women working, you know, being involved in, in um, entrepreneurial activities. And as, as young Saudis say, they want their country to be a normal country. And so I do think that Mohammed bin Salman really means it. And he has really very much staked his reputation on these kinds of promises around employment and uh, diversification. When he's not sawing journalists apart. Indeed. And, you know, so, and doing everything else he can to make sure that he's not getting um, any public dissent. People on social media expressing something as innocuous as Salman al-Auda, the renowned cleric who was, has been in prison since 2017 because he said something about how he hoped the, the dispute with Qatar would be resolved. And it has since been resolved, you know, that this is the Saudi policy was to resolve that that dispute. But he remains in jail. And so many other less prominent people who've also said something quite innocuous online and, and, and end up rotting in prison. 
I guess there are limits to this concept of normality then. Okay, and then on to this uh, remarkable deal uh, that China brokered between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Before we talk about the deal, um, what are the historic roots of the tensions between those two countries? So Iran and Saudi Arabia have had severed diplomatic relations in 2016 when uh, the Saudi state executed Nimr al-Nimr, who was a Saudi Shia cleric who was quite prominent. They also executed, I think, 47 other people that day. And that prompted great outcry in Iran. The Shia minority in Saudi have been historically disadvantaged and marginalized, although that has changed somewhat in recent years. There have been efforts to try to integrate them more, in part probably to avoid this fear of of that community as a sort of a fifth column for Iran. But anyway, it did lead to protests and uh, storming of the Saudi embassy in Tehran by Iranians. And so we have not seen normalized relations since that time. And previously, uh, there were other instances in the past as well, when the Saudis and Iranians had severed diplomatic ties due to various tensions. And what about the Yemen war? Is that a proxy battle? Or how does that figure in these tensions? It's certainly a concern for the Saudis uh, in particular. Um, I think the tendency to view the Saudi-Iran deal as somehow offering a solution to the conflict in Yemen goes back to the fallacy that this is only a proxy war because you know the, the Houthi rebels in Yemen predated the war when the Houthis took over the capital of Sana'a in 2014, and then when the Saudis led the coalition of countries now almost exactly eight years ago in 2015, March of 2015, you know, the, the Houthis predated that war and also existed before there was really any involvement by Iran. So the Iranians have certainly found it uh, beneficial to send uh, support to the Houthis to smuggle them weapons. This is a a way for them to antagonize the Saudis. But uh, again, there there are dynamics at play in Yemen that don't have anything to do with either Saudi Arabia or Iran, Um, although Saudi support for various militias, as well as Emirati support for various militias, um, are likely to continue to drive the conflict in the future, even if Iran decides as a result of the deal to fully end all support to the Houthis or to otherwise pressure them to end any violence towards Saudi Arabia. Although to be clear, the truce does remain in place. The Houthis have not lobbed any projectiles at the Saudis since April of last year. And so the the good news for this deal is we may have the Iranians pressuring the Houthis if the Houthis do sign a deal with the Saudis so that the Saudis can finally withdraw as they say they would like to. There were concerns the Houthis might not stick to it. And so now Iran would have an incentive to, to ask the Houthis to keep up their end of the bargain. Um, but the Houthis won't necessarily listen. So again, I, I, I think it's, it's not bad news for Yemen that the Saudis and Iranians have normalized, but this isn't going to solve the conflict in Yemen, unfortunately. How did the Chinese get involved? Did they just invite themselves in or did one of the parties invite them? How did that come about? Well, we had seen already the Saudis and Iranians had been speaking under the auspices of Iraq and the former prime minister, Al-Qadmi, who um, was no longer in power as of last year. And so we saw that that dialogue end or it appeared publicly that it had ended. But clearly, you know, under the the efforts of the Omani government as well, and, and apparently ongoing efforts by Al-Qadmi to continue these these talks sort of quietly and less publicly. And then in terms of why did, did China get to sort of step in and, and seal the deal, I think that a lot of that probably has to do with MBS would like to make the United States a bit jealous. You know, it's the timing is certainly interesting that we had just the day before this deal was announced, we, we saw that leak from Saudi Arabia of what sort of concessions they would expect from the United States if they're going to normalize with Israel, which includes a security guarantee, perhaps major non-NATO ally status, as well as a civilian uh, nuclear energy program, easier access to U.S. weapons. Interestingly, you know, none of those concessions involve anything uh, for the Palestinians, which one might have thought they they might. So in many ways, I do think that under these new conditions of multipolarity, countries like Saudi Arabia that historically would sort of get in line with U.S. preferences now have options. And so MBS can say to the United States, here's what I want. And if you don't give it to me, I can just go to China and, and perhaps start trading oil in, in Chinese yuan. 
There was reporting coming out from the Wall Street Journal that does seem to indicate that the decision to have this be under China's auspices is intended by MBS as as a signal to Washington. What exactly did the Chinese do? Are they just uh, middlemen or um, is there, are there some kind of material promises involved? Um, is there anything more to this than just a promise to be nicer to each other? That's a good question. I haven't seen reporting on material promises. I mean, the the Chinese have said they will host a GCC Iran summit later this year, and they have said they will sort of oversee this two-month trial period where we'll see envoys exchanged and the embassies being reopened. But, you know, I think in general, just the fact that China is the largest customer for both Iran and Saudi Arabia in terms of their oil. And so moving forward, I I do think that that's not likely to change. Uh, And so both Saudi, the Saudis and Iranians are, are going to want to pursue policies that reflect Chinese preferences and and that they don't, I mean, China now is is dependent on this oil, so also China will have to pursue policies that keep the Saudis and Iranians happy. But it's certainly interesting. I think this is part of why the deal has gotten so much attention is that the U.S. has claimed to be pursuing peace and stability in the region for years, and yet the region has been riven by conflict and war and flooded with U.S.-made weapons. And so now instead we have China, which has relations with both Tehran and Riyadh, um, fostering cooperation and hopefully less conflict in the future. Yeah, of course, the U.S. has, uh, at least its arms uh, makers, have an interest in uh, stoking tensions. Um, so <laughs> they may not like this peace deal. Oh, well, exactly, exactly. And I, that's, I think, my concern is that we will see the U.S. rushing forward uh, to meet Saudi demands um, in order to normalize with Israel and in order to sort of guarantee this relationship for fear that the Saudis will slip into China's orbit. But as I already said, the, China is their biggest customer. So the U.S. can't really sever that relationship. I'm speaking with Anel Shaleen of the Quincy Institute. Chinese interest in this, aside from um, securing the flow of oil, uh, how much of it is just a desire to assert itself on the world stage? Oh, certainly. You know, I, I think it's it's absolutely a, a way for China to demonstrate its its diplomatic clout and to sort of one up the United States. Although in many ways, if, if you know, for example, if um, Biden had just returned to the Iran nuclear deal right when he became president, as he could have, and, and if he wished to, he still could just rejoin the deal. This would then mean that the United States was actually uh, had contact with Iran or at least on on nuclear issues, whereas at present we, we don't really have anyone even interacting with Tehran. And so the US, the U.S. was in no position to broker any sort of a deal, um, whereas China was. And so in general, I, this is good for U.S. interests because it's not in U.S. interest to have these countries fighting each other, especially since we had seen sort of saber rattling coming from this new extremely right-wing government in Israel, and it had seemed that tensions were escalating to the point that we might, you know, it's possible conflict between Israel and Iran was going to break out. Now, this clear signal from the Saudis that they are really not interested in, in lining up on the side of Israel against Iran, or at least they're not willing to do so without these um, very significant concessions from the United States. My hope is that this may forestall a conflict like that. And, and a conflict, another conflict in the Middle East is, is certainly the last thing the United States wants to get bogged down in. How has Israel reacted to this? It's, it's interesting. You know, across the world, this deal has been met with praise and acclaim everywhere except Israel. Um, you have the the new government blaming the, the former government, you know, the new government being the the BB government, the, the Netanyahu government, which is the, the old, old government. And also the, the former government now blaming this new uh, hardcore right wing government, you know, but, but there's widespread recognition uh, that at least among sort of the, the political establishment inside Israel, that this is not in their interest because they very much wanted to see uh, the Arab countries lining up on their side against Iran. And how's it going down in D.C.? In Washington, it's there's a recognition that, you know, it, it certainly would look bad to come out against diplomacy. There's also an acknowledgement that this does perhaps signal that U.S. policy hasn't been all that effective, um, that perhaps the U.S., and from my perspective, this signals that the U.S. should be rethinking our approach to the region. 
But what I do fear is, is that actually the, the reaction inside the White House is we need to get the Saudis back on our team and we need to give them whatever they want to do so. But then what about China envy? You know, there's this old anxiety about, uh, not always expressed, but seems very visible, anxiety about China as a competitor to the U.S. Is that playing at all? Oh, certainly, certainly. I mean, you know, that that's why the impulse from inside the White House would be we need the Saudis on our team, meaning not on China's team, because that would, you know, this very much back in this Cold War thinking that, you know, if they're not with us, they're against us, that we don't want the Saudis to sort of move into China's orbit, as I was saying, in part because they're our largest customer for weapons and the extent to which Congress remains captured by the the big weapons manufacturers is an ongoing driver of political decisions. How is Saudi Arabia playing um, the Ukraine conflict? So the the Saudis have been, um, for the most part, unwilling to condemn Russia. The Emiratis, even more so, have have you know Dubai is very much a sort of safe haven for Russian tycoons and for for laundering Russian money. But Saudi Arabia as well has has wanted to not necessarily line up against Putin on on the side of Biden. Part of this has to do with just the fact that uh, from the perspective of someone like Mohammed bin Salman, a leader like Putin is more in line with his way of thinking. Both China and Russia and the the deeply <laughs> undemocratic Arab Gulf states all see fairly eye to eye about they're tired of the U.S. lecturing them about human rights. They're very much motivated by principles of non-interference in each other's affairs. All of these countries have fears of Islamists, you know, China's treatment of the Uyghurs, as well as Russia's war against Muslim populations in, inside of Russia. Russian concerns about terrorism, as well as scapegoating Islamist terrorism is very much in keeping with the way that these countries uh, have treated Islamists in recent years. Although obviously in previous years, we did see Islamists uh, often coming from places like Egypt and Syria, escaping persecution there that came and filled out the ranks of, of uh, the civil service in many of these countries as their governments were sort of staffing up and coming online in the 70s and 80s as, as the oil boom was, was getting these countries' economies off the ground. The Financial Times had a piece today in which uh, the reporter said, after a few years of bombast and adventurism from the devastating war in Yemen to the feudal embargo on Qatar, I never know how exactly to pronounce that, the kingdom appears to be turning to the more measured pragmatism that once defined Saudi foreign policy. Does that sound right to you? Yes, it is accurate to say that Mohammed bin Salman made some fairly foolish foreign policy decisions soon after his father, the king, came to power in 2015, obviously the war in Yemen perhaps being the most tragic and consequential of those, but also his treatment of the Lebanese prime minister, um, obviously things like the gruesome murder of Hashogi. But it does seem that he may have learned to behave not quite so rashly on the international stage. And certainly this, this latest example of the Saudis normalizing with Iran under the auspices of Beijing, which in turn, I think, is primarily directed at Washington. That's that's some fairly savvy politicking. And, and so I would say that it, it seems that he is getting perhaps a little bit more adept at his role. People used to say that uh, MBS and Trump had some sort of special relationship and now Trump is gone. Is there anything uh, to that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we saw the Saudi investment fund give, I think it was $2 billion to Jared Kushner's latest venture, eye-popping amounts of money that MBS just decided uh, to give his buddy Jared, even over the objections of the, the board of that fund, which said they, they didn't necessarily think that was such a, a wise financial decision. Okay, so finally, what does this Chinese deal say about the status of U.S. influence in the region and in the world more broadly? Well, as I was saying, I, I do think that, the, the, at least for the Saudis, I do think their decision to do so, to normalize with Iran, was primarily about trying to get Washington's attention and to say, look, we have other options if you don't give us what we want, meaning these, these security guarantees and a civilian nuclear program, etc. Um, so that does signal that from at least in in my interpretation that that Washington remains a key actor here but it also signals that these countries have other options now 
So in particular, China, but also Russia, just the behavior of many of the, the Gulf countries after the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, in their unwillingness to necessarily fully condemn what Russia is doing. And in addition, it's it's not only the Arab Gulf countries, but the, the global South in general, I think, is somewhat fed up with America claiming to stand for the international world order and American frustration with what Russia is doing and, and condemnation of it when 20 years ago this month, America invaded Iraq under very flimsy and false premises and has never been held to account for the, the devastation that that horrible decision wreaked upon not only the people of Iraq, but the broader region. So I, I do think that Although Washington wrote that, that the United States remains the most powerful actor militarily and, you know, the U.S. still has a, a large military footprint in the region, you know, bases across all six GCC states, these countries do have options now. And so I do think we are likely to continue to see behaviors like this that perhaps confound or frustrate the United States. Um, and I think the U.S. foreign policy establishment is going to have to get used to how to deal with that and how to, to make compromises and, and how to go about pursuing policy in a way that doesn't just rely on, on sort of force or coercion or our, our massive military. Because, you know, in general, I think the Americans tend to overestimate the utility of force. It seems that uh, it's going to take some uh, doing for the U.S. foreign policy establishment to get used to this new these new developments. Certainly, and it you know unfortunately, I don't think we probably have the t the time required for them to adjust. You know, things are changing fast, and I worry that our our sort of diplomatic core uh, it it may take years <laughs> to sort of learn how to how to behave and or sort of to to make decisions on, under this new reality in a way that is effective and and helps to address U.S. interests. That was Anel Shaleen, a fellow at the Quincy Institute. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of they knew from Kate N.V. Till next week, bye.